Good morning. My name is Rick Carlisle, and I am a member of this church. I became a member in 2006 for the second time. Originally, I joined the church in 1979, and I was a member then for four years. In my second time around, I received RE training and then helped my wife, Pam, teach several classes. Today, I will try my best to reach and explore a few of the benchmarks of Unitarian Universalism. In particular, I am taking aim today with one of our well-polished UU tools, the one I like to call our social sextant. This is the notion of a free pulpit and a free and responsible search. Free because, as you can see, I am given the liberty to preach just as the rest of you would be, and responsible because I have agreed in my searching to do it in a verifiable and sustainable way. I also ask my teachers and fellow lay people to help keep me in line. Would you do that? Would you do that? Good. It's been that way here for 30 years, for more than 30 years. So it is with the comfort of knowing that I am in the discerning and responsible hands of people who are my teachers and you who are my contemporaries that I embark on this journey of ordinary art. Let me begin by giving thanks to Joshua Lawrence for continuing with the thread of inspiring sermons with which we are blessed here. Sermons that make it a joy to pick up the thread and continue with the weave. Joshua was our speaker from last week, educating us on religious problems and benefits of a scientific perspective. I hope to continue with a few of his thoughts. How does science fit with art, you ask? Well, Joshua pointed out that courage is needed in pursuing science. So it is with art. Each time an artist begins a project, she or he faces the anxiety of an empty canvas or a blank page. Artists who survive as artists come to see that anxiety as a signal, a signal that the necessary artistic process is underway. Art is all around us. Though not commonplace, it is with us, with us every day. It permeates our souls. In fact, it may be one of the most basic of our instincts, as suggested by Dennis Dutton in his book, Art as Instinct. The drive to make art existing side by side with procreative, food gathering, and nesting instincts. Pam and I recently saw the film Cave of Forgotten Dreams down at the Robinson. A few years ago, a cave was discovered in France that had been sealed for tens of thousands of years by rock slides, such that no one could enter the cave in all that time. On the walls inside the cave are drawings of horses, lions, rhinos, bison, I think. And these drawings are 30,000 years old. 
Some of these drawings became sealed over time beneath a transparent crystalline layer that took many centuries to grow. A film crew was allowed to film the drawings before the cave was resealed, resealed to prevent the destruction of the drawings from the erosion that would set in from the cave being open to the elements and to human visitors. Upon seeing the drawings in the film, I had to marvel at this occurrence. How did people who were old-timers in the extreme manage to produce this very viewable art? Art with a particular style, no less. The kind of art that invites you to gaze upon it with a wide view and and just let your mind relax. Let your mind relax and wonder. In their book, Art and Fear, Observations on the Perils and Rewards of Art Making, David Bales and Ted Orland point out that art making has been around longer than the art establishment. Through most of history, the people who made art never thought of themselves as making art. In fact, it's quite presumable that art was being made long before the rise of consciousness, long before the pronoun I was ever employed. The painters of caves, quite apart from not thinking of themselves as artists, probably never thought of themselves at all. What this suggests, among other things, is that the current view equating art with self-expression reveals more a contemporary bias in our thinking rather than an underlying trait of the medium. Even the separation of art from craft is a largely post-Renaissance concept. And more recent still is the notion that art transcends what you do and represents what you are. Bales and Orland go on to observe, observe that Making art and viewing art are different at their core. Making art provides uncomfortably accurate feedback about the gap that inevitably exists between what you intended to do and what you did. In fact, if art making did not tell you, the maker, so much about yourself, then making art that matters to you would be impossible. I like what Dennis Dutton says when he writes that making art is an instinct people have and that it is one of the ever-present forces of evolution, that it, it is essential to our continued evolution. This is an important point that needs cogent support. Alas, the truth is the book was too meticulous and too dense for a cops and robbers reader like me. I just couldn't stay engaged with it. So I'll venture off, uh, off the scholarly path with this illustration. Consider some of the words we use when we talk about art and the words of quite a few religions. The primary noun of both concepts is the same, creator. It links the two concepts. From this word, we go on to easily talk of creativity, craft, creation, maker, author, etc. 
I attended the Louisiana Folklife Festival at Northwestern State University last weekend, and the theme there was Native American peoples in Louisiana. I listened as an elder of the Koasati Kashara tribe spoke of the gifts of our Creator, and these gifts were what you'd call abundant. They were all around us. Dances, singing, carvings, basketry, the making of gumbo filet. And it was clear that what I call art in that culture is something more than a process and a product. It is a way of living and of loving through the use of a gift that is being continually bestowed upon us. My mime teachers said something equally profound to their students, that the art they would do would encompass and transform them, that practicing it would expand their minds. Jim Hall and Tony Montanero, who was also Jim's teacher, described what they taught as authentic theater, personal performance, eloquent expression, the art of the economy of gesture. In giving constructive feedback while working on a mime piece, Tony would challenge a performer to get rid of everything in a gesture that was not essential to its meaning. The more economic that gesture is, Tony would say, the more impact it will have on stage. In my thinking, Tony's idea about the economy of gesture could also pertain to art as an evolutionary instinct. It is economy, in the sense of conservation, which is the one thing in our world that tempers the physical principle of entropy, the winding down of all systems, de-evolution. Economy of gesture could mean that we humans will have the use of physical expression for a longer time, that we won't devolve as rapidly as we might have without the influence the art of mime can have on an audience. Tony Montanero died in 2002, as did Barry Rolfe, who was perhaps the wisest female teacher of the art of mime. I met both people, and I studied for six weeks with Mr. Montanero. I can tell you that I hope to pass on the essence of what Tony taught. Beyond being taught the skills of illusion, I received an even more succinct teaching to pay attention to how and what you think while performing. In Tony's teaching, the key mime skill is actually the work of mentally creating solid premises from which all actions surface. And this is done by, by thinking carefully about which forces originate from within you and which ones are emanating outside of you. It is the difference between nudging the shoulder of your mate and being pushed by someone. Tony was clear that for a performer's actions to be believable on stage, they must begin from a correct premise. This way of thinking also turned out to be a great way to live life. That's why I want to pass it on. In a 2003 newsletter, 
the Association of the Association of Theater Movement Educators, Rich Rand says, in our small but shared circle, we find community. And within that community, we have experienced loss, the loss of human life, the loss of teachers, artists, and philosophers, Jacques Lecoq, Carlo Mazzoni Clementi, Barry Roth, Tony Montanero. These human beings have moved into a realm of past life, and yet, as is true for all who spend their lives giving life, their spirits have passed into the living bodies of their students. They touched us. Why then use the term ordinary art? Is not art a most astounding thing? Here's the answer, again from the book Art and Fear. This book is about making art. Ordinary art. Ordinary art means something like all art not made by Mozart. After all, art is rarely made by Mozart-like people. Statistically speaking, there aren't any people like this. But while geniuses may get made once a century or so, good art gets made all the time. Making art is a common and intimately human activity. The difficulties art makers face are not remote and heroic, but universal and familiar. Art is made by ordinary people. Creatures having only virtues and talent can hardly be imagined making art. It's difficult to picture the Virgin Mary painting landscapes. So there is some common ground when you investigate science and art. However, there, there is one telling difference. The main thing to keep in mind, says Douglas Hofstadter, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid, is that science is about classes of events, not particular instances. Art, however, is just the opposite. It is all about particular instances, not how things can be compared or whether they belong to a class, but how they are unique. I am very curious about art and art making, and to say something that will hang together over time is a challenge. But as an artist, I know that challenge usually means fear is hanging around. The artist who faces fear yet again in his or her working process knows that each time it appears, it has the means to slow the artist down, to make the artist emotionally vulnerable, and to tempt him or her to feel that he is falling short of his dreams about where his art is going. A few weeks ago, our choir sang America the Beautiful at our July 4th service. And there was some quiet discussion among choir members that this should be our national anthem. The words are beautiful. And Reverend Gerald gave us some things to think about with the lyrics as we rehearsed the song. Choir rehearsal is a liberating experience. Please consider adding it to your commitments if you like music and like to sing. 
After rehearsal, I searched a little bit further and found some things out about the glorious song, America the Beautiful, and the two people who composed the music and the lyrics. From all accounts, Samuel A. Ward, who wrote the music in 1882, and Catherine Lee Bates, who wrote the poem in 1893, encountered unexpected, thrilling inspirations to their works. Bates' inspiration came at the top of Pikes Peak in Colorado while on a tourist excursion. She literally looked out over the fruited plains and was enthused by what she saw. She quickly assembled her poem, which must have had a strong emotional charge. Later, in 1895, she published her poem in The Congregationalist back in Boston. Ward's inspiration had come in 1882 on a ferryboat trip from Coney Island to New York City, and he was so moved by what he was imagining, he asked his fellow passenger, Harry Martin, to let him write the music down on his shirt cuff. I considered the words, God shed his grace on thee, and I misunderstood when I first read that metaphor. God sheds her grace like a a snake sheds its skin on thee and me. What a way to be graced. With that reading, I couldn't imagine that shedding was a popular theological or artistic concept in the late 1800s. And I wondered how she settled on those words. It was only when I asked one of my co-workers for her opinion that I realized the word shed was probably being used as in shed some light, a possible indicator of the great enlightenment underway in the country at that time. But that's the risk an artist takes when committing to the use of some words or to a choice of color etc. You never know what kind of reader will be reading the poem. The Goat Hill Band formed sometime in the early 80s. I think the year was 1982 when I first played with the group. We were the first white band to play on the Hallelujah Train, a Sunday morning KSLA gospel show. We did O Center Man and No Place to Run number two and the mass choir in the bleachers that day supported us fully. We had a rockin' good time. I remember a young Brady Blade Jr. introducing us as the Goat Hill Baptist Church. (laughs) And we never looked back after that. The band in those early years consisted of Robert E. Zell, Bob Mangum, Bob Benefield, Connie Fair, James Hubbard, Charles Lee, Miriam Trahan, and myself. Later incarnations, and we became at times the Goat Hill Company, Tapestry, Goat Hill Psyche Rockers, Oasis, and the Wellheads, included Ben Bowden, Ray Brabham, Jeff Knight, Gene and Katie Pyle, and Monty and Marsha Brown. Others sat in at various gigs, Sandra Odom, Paul O'Neill, Jim Huckabee, and George Hancock. 
and many others still enjoyed more than a few of our regular Sunday afternoon jam sessions. Three of us were adopted into La Banda Paisana for the long ago Festa Italiana and for the Louisiana Folklife Festival in 1990. In our case, imagination and perseverance are key elements. And for us, perseverance also means tolerance. Tolerance for others' egos, for occasionally being out of tune, for pulling focus on stage, and so forth. We have two ethics. Vote with your body and rush the stage. One applies to how we interact among ourselves and the other to how we will try to act toward other performers should inspiration overcome us as audience members. In the first case, voting with your body is like our UU call to action, a case where just verbal statements of how one leans would not stand up to the veracity and robustness of showing a position through one's sustained actions. In the second case, rushing the stage means a democratic, group-wise, and responsible action when the inspiration to move might otherwise lead an individual to act out with an eye on self-satisfaction. Perhaps we had an overinflated view of ourselves, but even so, we were and are determined to temper it rather than repress it. And we had our apocalyptic times, our Justice League times, and our blues times. We have generally been a band with a purpose, never short of a purpose, however whimsical or honorable might those purposes be. We played music in the woods many times, trying to bring world peace and to have swinging parties. We played the Red River Revel, and we played for a gubernatorial candidate's fundraiser. Live music is one of the art forms, along with drama and dance, which are ephemeral. That is, they exist only when performed. There is no lasting product, as with a painting or a sculpture. I hope that art making will become more common among people And if I may quote from the song, Goat Hill Company, anybody can be a goat. (laughs) 